This morning, we are talking about uh, claims of Jesus. That's our summer sermon series, is about claims of Jesus from the book of John, the gospel of John. And they're the statements that Jesus makes where he says, I am something. And we've been talking about that since we started uh, the summer. Who does Jesus say he is? Who is Jesus claiming to be? Is he uh, a good prophet? Is he an enlightened teacher? Is he something more than that? Something bigger? And who does Jesus say that he is? Uh, Some of the things that we've talked about and that we will be talking about, so these are the claims he makes in John. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. If that sounds weird to you, then you should have been here last week when I talked about that. (laughs) What did that mean? Jesus says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. And this morning, we're talking about I am the door, which is in some ways the funniest one. If you just said, I am the door, you'd say, okay, that's weird. Why are you talking about that? Why are you saying that? What does Jesus mean when he says, when he says I am the door? That's the claim Jesus makes. Um, there was a time where maybe you remember it if, you've, uh, if you're familiar with the story of Jesus. If you're not, there was a time where Jesus had a lot of followers. The followers, they were growing and growing and growing, and they were really excited about Jesus. They thought, he seems like he's the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. So they were going to crown him king. They were going to th- overthrow the Romans and do the revolution. And so Jesus knew, and the, the crowd was growing and growing and growing. And so it got to the point where Jesus knew he had to do something to bring the crowd down. And so he gave them a really hard teaching. Actually, he said something like, you'll have to eat my body and drink my blood if you want to follow me. And the crowd was like, what? And a whole bunch of them left offended. Now, Jesus was talking symbolically, and we understand that's to do with communion, his body, and his blood. But they didn't know that, and they were offended, hugely offended. And I started thinking, if Jesus were walking around downtown Vancouver, or maybe downtown Maple Ridge, doesn't sound quite as awesome, downtown Maple Ridge, but... <laughs> You know, it's downtown. It's a downtown. A downtown? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Go with me on this. If Jesus were downtown Vancouver or Maple Ridge, well, what would he say that would be super offensive to people? What would be the teaching he would give that might offend a lot of people? And a, one of them might be this. I am the only way you can be saved. I am the only way you can be saved. I am the door to the kingdom of God, the only way to real and lasting life. This is the claim of Jesus. And this is why maybe this sermon might be super offensive to you. It's possible. If it would offend them, it might offend us in some way. This is what Jesus says in the book of John, chapter 10, verses 7 to 10. I'm reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the thieves did not listen, or the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And so the, the main idea, the big idea we're talking about this morning is that it's only through Jesus 
that we can be saved and find real and lasting life. That's the, the idea we're going we're gonna to take and chew on and see if we can come out the other side with. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved and find real and lasting life. Jesus is the door. This is what Jesus says. There's a show called Wipeout, and we used to watch it years ago. I don't even know if it's still on, but um, I used to watch it as pastoral therapy because there's something about watching people act really foolish and do obstacles and then get totally hammered and knocked off, and it's like impossible. There's just something therapeutic about that for me, watching people get whacked off, bouncing balls and... And just acts like crazy. So if you go back one. So there's one obstacle. And this is the obstacle. It looks like this. It's three doors. And these people. So they're supposed to run wholeheartedly through one of these doors. Now behind every door is the next picture. Is this giant hammer. So the joke is there's no door you can pick that's okay. All three doors lead to the giant hammer that hits them and knocks them off. And I think. Yeah. It's, someone's like oh, this sounds crazy. Yeah, it's funny to watch, though. There's something about it just makes you feel good. <laughs> that it's not you, it's them, maybe. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> now you're all going to watch Wipeout and be like, what did he see in this show? It's ridiculous. I think sometimes we have this idea of the door. Where we think, why would you go through a door if you didn't know what was on the other side? Now, for these people, if you're offering them like a million dollars or I don't, 100,000, I don't even know what the price is, but like, if I said, hey, run through this door and I'll give you a million dollars, a lot of you might start running through the door, even if you didn't know what was on the other side, right? You would do it for the, the idea that maybe there is hope on the other side for something different. Now, Jesus claims to be the door to a beautiful kingdom, to a free and abundant life. And I think we tend to be cautious. We hear a claim like that and we say, yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe there's a giant hammer back there. And Christians, they, I see them going around with giant hammers sometimes. So I'm a little worried about running through that door wholeheartedly. And we wonder, what does that mean for Jesus to say that? That I am the door. Jesus lays claim to this, this picture of a door or a gate. And what, what do we do with the door and gate? You go through it into something. That's how you get into my house. You come, I hope, through the door. Don't come in the window. Come in the door. That's what a door is for. We go in and out through the door. That's what Jesus says. He is the door. Now, the Bible is really clear about this. This isn't one thing Jesus said in one verse, and then we're like, well, maybe he didn't really mean that exactly. There's lots and lots of places where we see Jesus taking this picture in the Bible. So the, Jesus being the only perfect one. The rest of us, not perfect. Jesus, the perfect one. He's the last high priest, so who is going in to make sacrifices for the people. I'm reading through Hebrews, that's what it talks about. Jesus is the last high priest. He's the name above every name. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. The apostles, when Jesus died and rose again, and he was with them, and then he left, he went back to heaven, and he gave them his spirit, and then they go around, and they're proclaiming this message. What is the message they proclaim? This is what Peter says to the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by, by which we must be saved. There's no other name under heaven. Paul says it to the synagogue in Antioch. He says, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. 
Jesus says, I am the door. I am the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. No wonder people are up in arms. And this is what happens. When they hear Jesus say this, they get upset. They, th- this is what they say. They start calling him demon-possessed again. Remember the other week where they were having that argument with Jesus? And they were saying, oh, I think he's demon-possessed. What's wrong with him? Why is he saying these things? Again, the same thing happens. Verses 19 to 21, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? He's talking crazy talk. And then some of them say, but others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So they're having this disagreement, all these people. They're saying, this is really hard to believe. This is really hard to, to process. We're not sure either you're crazy or demon-possessed or, you know, the other argument is, well, you're doing these amazing things. We're not sure what to make of it. I don't know if there's any statement that could be more presumptuous or draw more ire in our 21st century for North Americans than this statement, I am the door. I am the only way. I'm the gate. Now, I've sat with some of you for coffee, and people, often we have these obstacles to faith as we're, as we're investigating, as we're looking at Christianity, and we're saying, okay, what's all here? There's some things usually that come up, and they would be obstacles. And I've sat, even a few months ago, I was sitting with a guy for coffee, and he had his list, he'd made a list of things, and he said, if I'm honest, these are things that I'm having trouble with. These are things that I just don't, I don't have an answer to. And so we sat and we talked through the list of, these are things that are hard to process. One of them is, what about other religions? What about other religions? This is a hard question. And if we're honest, you and I are honest, we'll say, this is a hard question. It's hard for me even to talk about. When I look at the topic and I think, well, do we really have to talk about this? Man, this is a hard topic for us. Why is it so hard for us to talk about? Timothy Keller talks about it in this way, that there, every culture has consensus beliefs, things that we as a culture believe and understand and hold together. And some of these things automatically make Christianity seem implausible to non-Christians. Every culture has these things. They're called defeater beliefs. And they're things that if I believe belief A, which would be the defeater belief, then it means belief B can't be true. So we have things we as a culture, we hold to, and then because we hold to this, we'd say, well, that makes Christianity seem untrue because of this or because of that. These cultural defeater beliefs. So one of them is that there cannot be just one true religion. That's one of our cultures, our culture's beliefs, is that there cannot be just one true religion. People say things like, haven't millions of people in other religions also encountered God, built civilizations and cultures, and had their lives changed by their experience of faith? Isn't that true? How can you say there's just one way? Now, Timothy Keller writes about this. He answers the question. How do we answer the question? There's two, there's two things to this. The first one is we need to understand, firstly, that that is a cultural block that we have. If you go to a different culture, they don't have a problem that there, there could be one true religion. Some cultures have that, and some cultures don't. Our culture does. So if you go to a different culture and you say there's just one, one way, Jesus is the one way, they'll say, okay, yeah, yeah, what else? You're like, what? That's not a problem? No, that's not a problem. But some other issue is a problem that we'd be like, what? That's your problem? What? In our culture, this is one of our things that we as a culture hold to. 
The second thing about this would be that to understand that inclusivity, to say everything is together, is a form of covert exclusivity. So we say, oh, we're inclusive, we're tolerant, this is our value, and yet that is a position that we hold. So the idea that no one should insist their view of God is better than the rest and every religion is equally valid, that is a position that can only be true if, A, God doesn't exist. Every religion can be valid if there's no God. Secondly, it could, or, that God is an impersonal force and he doesn't really care what we believe about him. Then it doesn't really matter. Yeah, that way, that way, that way, it doesn't matter. Either one of those things is true if we hold that position. So what we want to understand is that's a position that we hold, and there's lots of positions that we can hold. One, that doesn't make it right because it's more inclusive than another view. The story we're presenting, I think, is a more compelling story than that God is, there's no God, or that God is impersonally doesn't really care. The story Christianity presents, the story of the Bible, is a more compelling, more beautiful story. Jesus claims to be the door and the only way to real and lasting life. So what is Jesus saying here? He says he's the door to salvation. He's the door to salvation. He says whoever enters by me or through me, in some of the different translations, will be saved through me. Jesus is the door, and he says if we enter through him, we will find salvation. So my question always comes out, well, why do I even need saving? Why do I need saving? I'm doing pretty well. I can hold all this together for a few days or, you know, if you erase like Wednesday and we just looked at the rest of the week, I'd be doing pretty good. Like the, the week went well. I kind of held it together and things were good. Why do I need saving? The picture Jesus gives, and he gives this picture just before we pick up our passage and right after our passage. And the thing he talks about is sheep. That's the picture. Now, sheep are... Super awesome animals, aren't they, Matt? No, they're not. I was at Matt's farm and he told me, sheep, yeah, they're kind of dumb. Sorry to burst your bubble. I wish we were compared to, like, some really smart animal that was really awesome and, you know. But the sheep, you know, sheep, they're super great economic drivers and producers. They do their job and they got, you know, they do things well. And they're just as likely to get eaten or to get lost or to follow their way off the cliff or wherever. That's kind of where sheep are at. The Bible says this in Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the picture we're left with. We're lost. That's our problem. We're lost. This is the state we all find ourselves in. We're like lost sheep. And the picture is it doesn't matter how hard we try. We can't find our way back. We can't get out of the briar and the bushes and the thorns. We're prisoners of sin. That's the picture. And the Bible's clear. It doesn't matter how hard we try or what we do. We're not going to get free of it on our own. We can't do enough good works. We can't do enough religious activities. We can't make atonement, enough atonement, for our great failures as people. Last week, my sons got in a fight. It was a big one. They looked like they would never fight, right? This was one, it was a big one. It's on the list, big ones. 
And uh, I was meeting with a roofer, so it was even more irritating to hear all that going on in the background, trying to like, you know, everything's good. No, this is great. And I can hear it going on, and Lauren went and dealt with it. And uh, so I went up later and found out what the fight was about. And w they were separated. One was in his room. One was on the couch crying. And we went to the one, and he said um, his brother had said he hated him and that he wished he wasn't his brother. And it broke his heart. Now, in our family, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. So we take it really seriously. So I went into the room, and I sat down with the offending son. And I said, so tell me what happened. And he started to spin me this story, all this, you know, justifying and making it all seem okay. And uh, so I stopped him partway through the story, and I said, you know what, sometimes we do that, and sometimes, you know, we just, you know, we try to figure out that let's not do that today. Today's a, a, a serious day. Let's just, let's put all that aside, that kind of trying to make it sound nicer than it was, and let's just be honest. Let's just, let's just say it how it was, because it was ugly, and it was black, and I said, you know what, I have done and said things that are ugly and black that I wish I could take back, but you know what, sometimes, and I try to make it look better than it was, but it wasn't, it just is ugly. So let's just say that, why don't you just tell me the truth and say it how it was? And then he did. He said, I was angry. I got hurt and they were laughing. And I got angry and started chasing his sister and his brother was there. And he said these words in anger. And so I took the opportunity. I said, well, this is a good opportunity. We started talking about what Jesus has done. About the fact that we all deal with this blackness in our hearts. I said, this is it. When I'm angry and I do something or I yell, you've seen me. You've seen my black parts my sin, it's ugly. And I wish I could take it back. I wish I could change it, but I can't. And that's why we need Jesus. And he began to, to weep as I told him how hurt his brother was over these words. The pain in the words. That Jesus came for those words. He came for those moments. Colossians 1 verse 22 to 23 says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus was enough for those moments. Jesus was enough for our darkness, for the worst parts of us. Jesus was enough. There's an author, Francis Spuford, who was uh, uh, an atheist, and he became a Christian, and he wrote a book called Why, Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. And this is what he writes about the cross. When Jesus was on the cross and dying, and his description of what happened there, this is what he says. He cannot do anything deliberate now of Jesus. The strain of his whole body on his outstretched arms hurt too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought, as much for him as it has for anyone who has ever been stuck on one of these horrible contrivances, or for anyone else who dies in pain from any of the world's grim arsenal of possibilities. And yet he goes on taking it, taking in. It's not what he does, it's what he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything that cannot be escaped, and he does not even try to escape it. He turns to meet it 
and claims it as his own. This is mine now, he's saying, and he embraces it with all that is left in him. Each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were somehow precious, as if it were itself the loved child tottering homeward on the road. But there is so much of it, so many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, and so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. And Jesus was enough. He takes it all. All of our collective blackness, our evil, our darkness, our lostness, he takes it upon himself and says, I am enough. Now, it, it isn't enough for us just to know this or even to believe it in some kind of um, ethereal sense of belief. It requires a response from us. It demands a response. Now, I had my two sons there. So I had my one son who was now, he was crying. He was sad. And so I brought in my other son and I sat him down and I said, why don't you tell him how you felt? And as he began to share how those words hurt him, he began to weep. And then my son, my offending son, got up and he started saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And he went over and he grabbed him and they held him. And then they both started sobbing together. And then the one who was holding him just actually got and grabbed him and wrapped him ho his whole self around him. And they just held each other and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And he kept saying, I love you, I love you, I'm so sorry. It was beautiful. This is repentance. This is the response of a heart that sees and understands that we're dark. There's darkness. I can't fix it on my own. I can't make it right. the steps to repentance or to to response or this would be to repent to do exactly what he did to say i'm sorry i'm sad i grieves my heart that i've wronged you this is what we do we admit we're lost we admit we can't fix this on our own and then secondly we confess jesus so that is to thank him for what he's done for going to the cross and taking all of that upon himself for taking on my sin and my shame and all of my evil and paying for it and wiping it away. And thirdly, to invite his spirit to come in and to change us. This is the offer Jesus makes for us. Not just that he wipes our sin away and he forgives us of every wrong we've done and will do, but that he offers his very life to come in and to change us day by day and set us free. So we've been set free at the cross and we're also being set free day by day. Jesus is the door to salvation. Jesus is the door to life. Jesus is the door to life. I think every person deep in their heart has a desire, a longing to experience real life, to live. That's why I think we're drawn to survival stories. As a kid, I used to read the drama in real life. I, in the Reader's Digest, I'd always flip to that part where the, someone got mauled by a bear and then they dragged themselves 
through all the forest to get to safety and someone say, oh, that's such a compelling story. Or when they were lost in the woods and they just kept going and going, they were starving and they ate berries and they made it. Like something about the survival story is compelling to us. Because I think as, as people, as humans, we long to experience life. We want to live. We want to make it. Jesus answers the search we have for compelling life, for real and lasting life. And the last part of this, this passage is beautiful. He says they will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Freedom and pasture and abundant life, love and security and purpose and fulfillment. These are the things Jesus is, is laying out before us. Now, the come in and go out part, I don't think that's Jesus talking about, oh, when you come into God and then you go out and leave God and then you come back to God and then you leave God again. It's not that kind of come in and go out. It's the come in and go out we talk about when we talk about gathering and scattering as a church. When we talk about coming together for encouragement and for teaching and uplifting, and then we go out into the places where God has called us to be of influence, to be salt and light in the world, to make a difference. And then we come back and we come in again and gather. I think it's that kind of picture. We're coming in and going out. We don't stay huddled together. And for me, this picture is also like my weekly or daily where I go out, but I, the, the world wears on me or my, it batters my heart. Or we see and experience things that are challenging or they're a struggle or they're painful. And it wears on us. And then we come back in and we need to be reminded of grace again. Oh, and we need to see him again. We need to experience his presence. That's our picture of communion. Why we do communion every week. Because we want to come back in under grace and be reminded again. Oh, yeah, where I've gotten knocked off course. I want to be reset. I want to be refocused on you again, Jesus. This is the picture of coming in and going out. And Jesus' promise is that you will find pasture you will find pasture. All the greener grass you've been looking for, all the hoping for something more, the quest for fulfillment, the grazing here and there where you're just searching and searching and searching and you just can't seem to find it, where you're always hungry and always thirsty. The, the fields that you saw up ahead and you went to turned out to be thorns and thistles. And you go, ah, oh, it looked like grass. It's not. Where's the grass? Jesus says, you'll find pasture in me. John 3, 6 verse 35 another one we're going to be doing later in the summer i am the bread of life jesus says whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty will never be hungry will never be thirsty if you come to him jesus addresses to these people who are struggling so they are listening to jesus and they're struggling with like who is this guy, and why is he claiming these things that only God could claim? He must be an agent of Satan. That's what they decide, some of them. They say he must be like, you know, he's just a wacky agent of Satan or something. He's possessed. They'd rather believe that than that this could be true. It's so hard to believe the promise could be true, these incredible claims Jesus makes. But Jesus addresses them even though they're conflicted and they're wrestling with this, because they also see that Jesus is healing people. And he's, he's talking about this God who loves them and this kingdom that welcomes everyone. And they want to be with him. So they're saying, well, he's crazy. He must be crazy to say that. But I just, I want to hear more. 
No, you're crazy. You must be demon-possessed. I'm going to kill you. And then they come, I just need to hear more. Wow, he just healed more people. Wow, he just healed my sister. Wow, he just healed. And they're compelled to keep coming back to him. They're drawn to him. What is it about him? Jesus clarifies this kingdom for them. He says, there's two kingdoms. Let me explain it to you. You're conflicted. Let me explain it. On the one side, there's a kingdom of darkness. And in the kingdom of darkness, there's a champion whose sole purpose, whose sole desire is to steal, kill, and destroy. This is his goal. This is his desire. He'd be happy to sell you a counterfeit bill of goods and watch you smash up your life, broken and destroyed. That's his, that's his goal. And on the other side, there's a kingdom of light whose champion, his deepest desire is to rescue you. And he will come and he'll give his life for your life. And he'll come and he'll find you wherever you are and he'll bring you into good pasture. Which one do you think I am? Jesus says. Do you think that's me? Or is this me? I have come to bring you life. Full, abundant life. That's the promise of Jesus. And they stand in answer to the deepest longings of our hearts. What are you carrying? What do you carry around with you every day? Your burden of responsibility? Your struggle to succeed? Your failures? Your deepest shame? Your secret shame? Your untold fear? Your deep-rooted insecurity? I just don't know if I measure up. Or your desperation to be loved? Not to be lonely anymore? Jesus says in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Give me those things, Jesus says, and you'll find that I can meet you in them. What are you wanting? If I were to ask you, hey, I'll give you whatever number, you get a one wish, whatever it is, I'll give it to you right now. Be like, okay, what would I say? The genie's here. What, I, what am I going to say? Give me anything, a billion dollars. What, what would be the thing you would say? A new house? A bunch of money? Financial security? Maybe respect? Maybe public recognition, achievement or something, some kind of job promotion? Would it be hope for you? Maybe it's healing for your pain, respite for aching pain. Maybe it's emotional pain or maybe it's physical pain. Maybe it's love you're looking for, the loneliness to end welcome and belonging and family and friends maybe it's fear you want the anxiety to stop just to be able to trust and walk what is going to meet your need isaiah 55 god says come all you who are thirsty come to the waters and you who do not have money come and buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without cost why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what's good and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. This is the invitation of God through Jesus that you would come. You would lay down the things you're carrying and you would receive some of those things your deepest heart is looking for through the gate, through the door of Jesus. There is hope, there's life, there's pasture. It's only through Jesus that we can be saved and find real and lasting life. Jesus is the door. 
he claims to be the only way into relationship with God. And this claim is supported by the rest of the Bible. This is the story. Now, our culture has a different story, and we have to recognize that they're presenting a different view, a different story. And we have to wrestle with those things rub against each other, and we've got to work them through, talk about them. Jesus is the door to salvation. He claims to be the way to freedom. He gave his life as the sacrifice for our sins, and his life paid the debt we owed of sin. And this news requires a response from us. It requires that we would repent. We would change our direction. We would say we can't do it ourselves, and that we would recognize Jesus as the one who did and who does do it. And then we would invite him to come in and transform us and change us day by day. Jesus is the door to life. He promises that if we go through him, we will find lasting life, the kind of life we've been looking for our whole lives. We'll be satisfied. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that uh, you were very clear clearer sometimes than I would like to be or than I am. You are. And you said that you're the door, you're the way, and uh, we can rely on it. We can trust it. Jesus, I pray that, um, that anyone who's here who hasn't trusted you, who hasn't gone through that door, hasn't entered into relationship with God, that this morning they would experience that reality that they would realize that they're lost, that we are lost without you. We can't do it ourselves. We can't make ourselves good enough. But that you, through your death, you took everything, all of our sin on yourself, and you paid the price for it. Jesus, I thank you that you're inviting us into life with you. And whether we've been a Christian a long time or we're just, just are wanting to do that today, God, that that you are inviting us into life with you, that we can be filled by you and changed by you. We can experience what real life looks like and what it means in you. So would you come and would you do that in our hearts this morning? We say we love you, God. We love all that you've done for us, and we thank you. Amen.